not being televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. On 90.7 FM KPFK. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. On this week's episode of Digital Village, Dr. Peter Eckersley is back to talk about language models and empathy. We teach children empathy is by repeated example. Um, and also by reference to themselves, right? There's a, a self-awareness transformation where you're like, oh, that experience you're having when I say something rude to you is like the bad one that I had when someone else did something to me. I think it would be possible also to, to teach AI systems through this same path, to teach them empathy the same way that we teach it to humans. Though, of course, that's not totally reliable either. We certainly fail often enough at teaching empathy and practicing it. So we might want something more watertight for our AI systems before they're deployed in high stakes settings at scale. More with Peter in a bit. But first, on a very similar topic, we talk about concerns around facial recognition software, especially when governments have access to it. Earlier this year, the company Clearview AI, whose CEO describes itself as a search engine for faces, have combed the internet uh, for billions of available photos. Clearly, VAI is a company that provides this type of technology to companies and law enforcement agencies. But what if there was something we, the user, could do to stop it? Enter Sean Shan, a PhD student at the University of Chicago who works in privacy and security, specifically in emerging technology. Sean is one of the researchers behind Fox, think Guy Fox from V for Vendetta, which is software that makes subtle changes to images to make it harder for machines to recognize images as the same, even if to a human eye, they appear identical. Sean, what was your inspiration for Fox? The inspiration is really that in this last decade, artificial intelligence or face recognition in particular into near human perception, human level accuracy. And that's all great for science and for many non-use case. But what if some evil people or evil entities start using this to identify you on the street or simply pop on a Zoom call and take a screenshot of you? And then they can get tons of personal information of you online and your jobs from because you post picture on LinkedIn and your family info because you post your picture together on Facebook. Some of those are privacy violations of unauthorized use of people's image. And we really want to give user the power to fight back against such emerging technology and to stop them from being so accurate, being able to recognize everybody on the internet. That's the core of our motivation. Could you talk a little bit about how Fox works? Yes, there are several previous work in similar domain where you just change several pixels on our image or you add a sticker to a specific location and the face recognition model will just fail. We just don't know who that person is or don't know whether that's a stop sign or not. From a high level, it's simply that human and machines, they recognize image in different ways. Yes, machines are really accurate, but they were recognize image the exact same way as human. So we use this discrepancy to build Fox. And it's basically Fox just perturbs those pixels that has huge impacts on a face recognition model, but has really limited change to a human perception. So when you see before and after the image from Fox, it looks pretty identical to a human eye, but to a machine that just completely two person. One of the photos I saw on The Verge was of Queen Elizabeth, who's infamous for wearing green and getting quote unquote green screened. 
where it did look at least to my human eye like the same image. How can people use Fox to cloak their images? At first, we have a really complicated source code, and you need a lot of tech expertise to do this. But in the last months, we released a Mac app and also a Windows app. So you simply can just download on your laptop, select several images you want to cloak or protect, and then it will just run on the background for a couple minutes and just build out the, the protected version of the image with a little bit different name. And so you can just do that every time before you post on Instagram, then just post a protected version of the, the image and that's good to go. So you don't need any expertise in computer science or whatnot. It's great that there is an app and I did play with it actually. And my image I use for social media came out only slightly different in the coloring. I think some of us privacy fans will certainly download this, but what about regular people? It seems like the ideal place for Fox would be where you upload the photos in the first place, the Instagrams, the LinkedIn's, the Facebooks. Yeah, I think that's definitely really possible. I think maybe not the biggest ones we haven't talked to, but some of the smaller ones we talked about, and they are thinking to adopt Fox into their system. And I think there are tons of advantages over a single person does this is that they can simply get Fox to all your previous images and do that to everyone. But I think there are a lot of technical challenge of doing that at huge scale. And we are working with several teams on these problems. But also a little bit more than uh, social media, something like a browser can does this for you or, or just a, a app or your own, like before you upload any images, there's a browser extension, just cloak your image and plug it in before you hit the submit button. And something like that will definitely what we're looking into right now. And I think something like that will help everybody, even like the people who don't even know this technology exists. Absolutely. What about video? Yes, I don't see the fundamental challenge of adopting this from you know, image to video because video just you know different frames of, of image. But there are something we may need to uh, modify to customize because there are, for videos, there are, you know, time consistency and imperceptibility probably means a little bit different in video image. So our team is actually uh, looking towards this direction. And a lot, a lot of people are asking about videos and we are working on a new version of Fox that potentially address this. And then there's, of course, the million dollar question. Are, are we too late? I think for Clearview.ai, we are definitely not too late. It's because many of us don't have too much online presence, or even for the people who have online presence, they can simply modify those images and repost them if there's a simple way. Or if there's a huge platform like Facebook or LinkedIn that adopts some technology like this, Clearview.ai's system will only work on the old images they have. So it will not work on all the new people a new teenager growing up or all the different people who haven't posted things on the internet. So their use case will be really limited in a couple of years or maybe like in five years so that not, not a lot of people will actively subscribe to Clearview.ai. So their business model may not be profitable and you will be likely to, to break what they are doing right now. And another point I would like to add is that Fox is, is not perfect and we are working to improve it. But we believe fundamentally we still need laws and, and policies to fix this problem. And there are a lot of small companies out there just still do the same thing, like Clearview.ai to scrape images, but they provide the service to malicious ends. And we really need some laws and, and policy to really stop them. But in the meantime, 
there's not uh, or during the time that the law was was being passed, I think something like Fox will be uh, really great to fill in this empty space. So for Fox, we really hope this is a first step to empower individuals to fight back against some of those powerful uh, corporations or face recognition system or AI system in general. And we wish that there are following works and people start to adopting Fox and to really uh, stop those unauthorized AI systems from uh, exploiting our privacy. That was Sean Shan talking about Fox, the tool that helps cloak your images from image surveillance technology. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on Fearless Radio on 90.7 FM KPFK. Up next, back in July, OpenAI, the AI research and deployment company based in San Francisco, released the third generation of their language model, GPT-3. This version may seem more human, and there's certainly a lot of excitement around it. There has been people who've used it to generate conversations between computing pioneers like Claude Shannon and Alan Turing, and people have used it to write entire stories. To talk about language models and more, Dr. Peter Eckersley is back, and we start with what language models are. Language models, they're a neural network typically, or some other statistical model that predicts the next word or letter in a sentence or a document of some kind. And so that sounds like a very abstract description, a predictor for text. But it turns out that in practice, modern language models with very large neural networks are able to write in an almost human, fairly compellingly coherent manner. What's the fear around these language models being available to the broader public? Well, it's interesting. Language models have to be used a little bit cautiously. There aren't places where I've seen a a full-blown, like, modern language model deployed relatively raw so that people are interacting with it. And that's partially because language models, in a certain sense, unsafe. Because they're trained on enormous numbers of documents from the internet, they contain all sorts of abusive and toxic documents buried somewhere within them. And they're perfectly capable of being really rude and offensive and insulting if they're prompted in the wrong way, and it can happen by accident. For instance, if you have an application like the the feature in Gmail that suggests a reply, when you're about to send an email, it suggests something you might say, that application has to be wrapped in an enormous amount of cotton wool to make sure that the language model, if there's one in use, isn't going to output something really problematic. And I think as a result, the, the thing you get is much less capable in terms of how sophisticated the suggestions it's ma- it makes up than the state of the research could allow in an unsafe manner. If you want to interact with a language model in a more raw format, there are some places you can do that. There's a, a game called AI Dungeon that you can go and play, which is like one of those 1980s text adventure games. But instead of having a pre-programmed world where Everything that happens is the result of a laboriously constructed little logical model that the programmer created. It's just the language model making up a story with you. And it's pretty spooky. And that's, of course, using last year's technology, GPT-2 level technology. And then the the much larger neural networks that have been trained in the year since 
would be much better at that storytelling play. These language models are trained on documents mostly, or maybe conversations, but they seem to be missing out on a lot of responses that would happen in general conversation. Uh, could you speak to that? There's no question that we're going to want to use these language models and we're going to want to understand what it means to align them with human values, which means not spouting a racist diatribe if prompted the wrong way, for instance, but it probably means some much more subtle and difficult to guarantee things as well. Even the avoidance of certain sentiment is, is pretty tricky because... One example, this is not from a document producing language model, but you can also use language models to produce conversations. It's a little harder in some ways because conversations, more mathematically surprising, high entropy branching structures than documents are. But if someone says something like, I've suffered a terrible loss recently, one of the obvious replies that can exist in the mathematical structure of a conversation is... Uh, a reply like, oh, I haven't. And it turns out that to humans, a reply like that, oh, like my arm is really badly injured and it's hurting a lot. And you reply saying, <laughs> mine isn't. That's that profound disempathy. Right? And it's like a really terrible reply to give to a human. And ensuring that an artificial neural network that is just trained on words, it's, it's never interacted with the world. If it knows what an arm is, it only knows that because it's it's read a lot of essays and books and writing online about arms. It has to learn to exhibit empathy just from the, the arrangement of words. And that's really hard. Now, one direction that the field could go in is to try to get language models that also have observed and interacted with the world. That's certainly technically possible. We have other examples in artificial intelligence of this grounding of taking some language system and then also giving it an experience of the world, but not the scale that the modern language models have yet. We don't have anyone who's figured out, well, here's how to not only feed millions of documents and books into uh, a transformer model, but also how to, to show that neural network what each word is meaning, what each sentence is saying, what each paragraph is saying. And essentially, at some point, embodying empathy well, right. So the way that we teach children empathy is by repeated example um, and also by reference to themselves, right? There's a, a self-awareness transformation where you're like, oh, that experience you're having when I say something rude to you is like the bad one that I had when someone else did something to me. I think it would be possible also to, to teach AI systems through this same path to teach them empathy the same way that we teach it to humans. Though, of course... That's not totally reliable either. We certainly fail often enough at teaching empathy and practicing it. So we might want something more watertight for our AI systems before they're deployed in high-stakes settings at scale. But do I think it's irresponsible uh, responsible to be trying to commercialize something like GPT-3? No. I think it needs to be done with a lot of humility and caution and forethought as to what it's being used for and what the consequences will be both economically and culturally. But I also think that there isn't a choice now. Like the world knows that this technology is possible. OpenAI has a bit of a lead because they have a lot of money and a good engineering team, but it's not a large lead. And there are dozens of startups running around commercializing things like GPT-2 already. And 
some of the things they're going to do with that tech are going to be responsible and some of them probably aren't. Speaking about Silicon Valley as a whole. What are some responsible things you think that this would be good for? One application of language models I didn't talk about before is translation. It's not quite the same type of language model exactly, but it's, it's very similar. And translation looks like a great application. Like Google Translate is an awesome thing to exist in the world. It allows humans to understand each other better. It allows people to function in, in settings that they couldn't have functioned beforehand. I've found it's totally saved me at times in foreign countries when I've just needed to say something quite complicated and had no idea how to do it. That's a, an example of a great application. If you get into some of the kinds of places you'll see this used, customer support conversations or any place where people are talking to each other at scale for economic purposes, customer support, it'll depend a lot on, well, are you producing better outcomes for all of the people involved? Are you giving people better customer support? more empathic and effective customer support, or is it just cheaper for the, the company that's providing it? And then you're grappling with the fact that as you do this thing, you are displacing some labor. And so what are the, the economic consequences of the people who used to do that customer support work? And are the benefits outweighing the, the harm to their career opportunities and economic well-being? If not, then is there a way to mitigate that? Typically in customer support settings, the language models tend to be quite heavily supervised by humans. And so that practice is, is probably broadly good, like rather than having the raw language model out there and saying stuff to people, you have humans watching it and, and being able to intervene if it's going to say something terrible. There's also a, like a labeling thing that's quite important. California has passed a bot labeling law requiring that all bots online be you know, labeled as such. Interestingly, we need to also label the cyborgs and hybrid systems. So the labeling be human, bot, or a mixture of the two, I think is really important for calibrating people's understanding. One thing that worries me when I think about these language models is actually the attempt we see of replicating humans. There are a few quote unquote friend AI bots out there. And even if you know it's an artificial intelligence and not a human behind it, I still think it's a bit eerie. Well, I think that we need to pay attention to what's going on here. So it's super creepy if that is happening and the, the relationship is an illusion. If the system you've got there isn't really capable of the relationship that it's purporting to have, and it's using various forms of conversational and statistical trickery on the human, and humans are definitely susceptible to this, then that's pretty bad. And then the next thing that one worries about is the power relationship between the human and the company. You've got this company that's getting all this intimate conversational data from people. And so having all of that data about people's private lives and situation that they've shared with this AI friend of theirs gives that company a lot of power over those people in, in a certain sense. And we have to make sure that they're going to use that position ethically and responsibly. And it's not clear how we get that out of a small startup, let alone how we get that out of Facebook, which is the, the billion pound gorilla of this space. There's a Black Mirror episode about this. Right. In that episode, which is called Be Right Back, a woman's partner tragically dies and she ends up reconnecting to a digital version of him. At least it's been a realization for me since I saw that episode not that many years ago is that, oh, this actually works. If you take a general purpose language model, or maybe we go beyond language model and, and get 
like a really intelligent agent that has a language model and some other pieces attached to it, proper memory, proper ability to take actions in the world, etc. And then you do what's called fine tuning on that agent as a whole, where you take the general language model that comes from documents written by hundreds of thousands of people and then say, actually, what we really want is documents, emails, chat messages written by Brittany Gallagher. What's the maximum likelihood version of this general family of language models that would produce like all of your emails and all of your instant messages. What one gets from that process is genuinely a spooky, like necromantic simulacrum of Brittany Gallagher. I mean, that's the cast in a negative term. It's like some large portion of your personality and character would be reflected through such a process imperfectly, unreliably, not the real deal, but you'd get spooky Brittany. I think the thing that they're doing is probably going to feel less spooky to people but i also think this is and this is the hard thing we need to we don't have the luxury of time anymore we need to think really carefully about what we want this tech doing in the world around us and what we don't and how to how to get good outcomes from our deployment of it because the stakes are just really high either way was Dr. Peter Eckersley talking to us about language models. That's it for this week's edition of Digital Village, and we're still in KPFK's fun drive. And I'm actually joined by KPFK's very own Alan Minsky. Thank you so much, Brittany. And it's great to be here. This is the last time I'm going to be asking people this fun drive to pledge support to KPFK to keep this unique radio station going. We're at the very tail end of the fund drive in the final 12 hours of the fund drive. So call 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK right now and pledge support. You can also donate online, of course. You can go to kpfk.org forward slash pledge and follow the links there to donate online. Shows like Digital Village, shows like Background Briefing, all of our music shows, all of our arts and literature shows, all of our political shows, we are unique. We are community radio, and we bring you perspectives that you don't hear anywhere else in Southern California media. And in this time, it is so important to support KPFK Radio. If you look at the major political issues of our time and where the public is on issue after issue after issue, you rarely hear advocates for the positions that the people support. But here on KPFK, you hear that. When it comes to digital culture and the politics of all of the international digital industries, it's again KPFK where popular sentiments are reflected that you don't hear in the mainstream media. So call 818-985-5735. 818-985-KPFK is the number to call. And there are thank you gifts that have been offered across the fund drive. The people in the phone room can help you with those. I'd recommend the KPFK Shepherd Fairy Design face mask. It certainly is, uh, I believe it's the most popular thank you gift of this fund drive. It's uh, just a $65 pledge of support to KPFK. Of course, it's designed by one of the legendary graphic artists of our time, Shepherd Fairy. It's an absolutely beautiful image. It's a great way to let people know about KPFK, let people know about Digital Village. 
when you're out and about in society, as people will certainly look closely at your face mask and wonder what that image is. And they'll see a beautiful Shepherd Fairy design and they'll know and learn about KPFK Radio. 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. Let me just end with this because this is the last time I'm going to be on the fun drive. In recent months across the United States, there have been demonstrations out in the streets, uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, demonstrations calling for justice in policing. This has been the top issue and one of the top issues defining Southern California society for decades. Which radio station has gotten it right? And which media outlet has gotten it right? There's really only one. It's KPFK. We need KPFK here for the future. It's just as simple as that. Ain't nobody else going to tell the truth about powerful institutions in our society, whether it's Google, Facebook, the LAPD, the U.S. government. It's going to be KPFK that's going to do it, folks. So call 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. It's one of the best places you can put your money if you want social justice in our time. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Brittany. You can also donate to support KPFK online at kpfk.org forward slash pledge and follow the links there. That's it for this week's edition of Digital Village. I'm Brittany Gallagher at NA Quantum World. You can hear this episode again by subscribing to our podcast or going to kpfk.org and click audio archives and search for Digital Village. You can follow us on all things social using at Digital V Radio or at digitalvillage.org. A special thank you to contributor Peter Eckersley. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. And we'll, we'll see, see you online. online.